0: You guys can uh, grab your Bibles and then stay standing to your feet in honor of the Word of God. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 again today. Matthew chapter 10, um, and I'm going to read verses 34 through 39. Um I'm just going to preach on verse 34 um, because I think it's important that we get a really good idea of what uh, Jesus is saying in this passage. And I want to unpack this and I want this um, one verse to um, go with us through at least next week, if not the next couple of weeks, as we look at the rest of these verses in this little section and in my Bible and probably in your Bibles. This is its own little paragraph. And so you kind of see a distinction there. But beginning in verse 34 here, Jesus is still talking to His disciples and He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake... We'll find it. This is God's Word. You guys can have a seat. So, we're in Matthew chapter 10, and, and we've been here, we've kind of recapped this section over and over and over. And so, I don't want to spend a ton of time uh, reminding you what we've, what we've said until, you know, in a few weeks I'll do it all over again. But the Good Shepherd, Jesus, is sending out His sheep in the midst of wolves. And so we've seen so far in this chapter, He's called them, He's equipped them, He's instructing them, He's preparing them for what they're about to endure as uh, the very first missionaries of the the gospel of the kingdom in in the life of Christ. He's getting them ready to go out and reminding them of what they, they should expect as they go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, remember they're only going to Jewish people at this point and he's he's letting them know here's what you should expect and he's he's warning them sheep amidst in the midst of wolves it's it's going to be dangerous it's and people are going to want to kill you and they're going to drag you before governors and kings and they're going to flog you in synagogues and and so he's he's warning them he's He's been completely honest. He's not sugarcoating any of it. He's not saying, you know, now that you're following me, you're going you're to be blessed and you're going to have money and, and ease and prosperity and, and all you have to do is have faith. He's being really serious and really, really uh, sober words we've looked at over the past several weeks. Um, and we've, we've talked about how these truths come down through the ages. There are some aspects of this ministry that, um, that were only for this time. Of course, we don't limit our evangelism to just Jewish people. We have been sent to all of the nations, all people groups. And so um, some of these truths are for the original context. And and a lot of the the truths come down to us. And the principles, even all of the principles are applicable to us as disciples and followers of Jesus. And so um, over the last several weeks, Jesus has tried to calm their fears as He's told them the truth about what's going to happen He's, he's calmed their fears. And we looked at that in verses 26 through 32, that we pulled out of there great truths about God. That's our comfort. It's not try hard and, and you'll maybe be okay, or, or just be smart. Just, just say the right thing. No, he's, he, he uses truths about God, that God has a purpose. God is sovereign. God is providentially working in all things. That God will be satisfied by the intercession of Christ for those who will publicly acknowledge Jesus. And so we take those truths of God and that is our comfort. Same with, with these disciples. We don't look in ourselves. We don't look deep down inside and try to try to pull out some comfort in ourselves because we don't have it. It's, it's all of God. And that's, that's what we've looked at for the past... Two weeks as far as calming the fears and helping these disciples and us be be okay with being disciples, being okay with raising up our children, knowing that the things in our culture that are getting bad, they're going to be worse for our children. And so I'm raising up my children to be Christian disciples, knowing that the world for them is going to be a lot worse than it is for me. And so... I'm okay with that because God has a purpose. God is sovereign. God is working in all things. And ultimately, if they will confess Him, that God is satisfied and and pleased with their work. Now today, He continues. He kind of goes back into explaining just how serious this call is. Remember, when we went through the names of the disciples, 10 out of the 12 will be martyred for their faith. They will be killed for being Christians in the future. John was exiled to the island of Patmos where he spent out spent out the rest of his days. Judas of course was a devil Jesus said. But 10 of them, they will give their lives. This this stuff that Jesus is saying will will have to remain in the back of their minds all the way through their entire ministry until the point when when for Peter he's hanging upside down on a cross or or the way these other disciples were, were martyred, they're going to remember this. You can imagine them thinking back to Jesus the very first time they were sent out. Jesus said that we would be dragged before governors. Jesus said we would be flogged. But He also said that God the Father has a purpose and, and the Father is sovereign and, and all this is okay. And that's why Peter could say, well, sure, crucify me if you have to, but you know, don't do it right side up because I don't deserve to be crucified like Jesus. This These teachings have have been carried on with Him all the way through their lives and these men were were martyred. And we learn a lot about discipleship and following Jesus by reading this and by watching their lives. And I I hope that you guys are, are learning a little more about what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Whether you're a seasoned Christian or whether you're a brand new believer, we all have to be reminded from time to time you have surrendered to Jesus. And what this means is you're going to acknowledge Him before men. You're going to be dragged before governors. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be uh, have all these things against you. But that's, that's the plight of those who are following Christ. And so I hope you guys are learning. I know I'm learning as I'm studying this. I'm, I'm, I'm being reminded of what it means to be a Christian and, and constantly reminded of my... Um, natural fears when it comes to just having a conversation where well, these men were killed for their faith. Our brothers and sisters are being killed for their faith. Um, so hopefully you guys are learning. So let's look at this this passage. Verse 34. I'm just going to look at this one verse today because this is the main idea of these next few verses. It may not be the most important idea or, or point, but this is the main idea. When we get a good grasp of this idea, we're going to see how it plays out in verses 35 through 39. So... Jesus starts off with three words. Do not think. Do not think. He's not saying don't ponder or or don't um, consider things. The word here, think, means to um, suppose. And some translations may even have. Do not suppose. This idea that we've taken some facts or we've taken some information and we've come to a conclusion. We've supposed something. And he's saying, do not suppose, do not think, and he's addressing clarifying his purpose. That's what we're going to be looking at today is is his purpose. So he's, he's addressing their assumptions or their presuppositions as pertains to his purpose. Now, when you read through the Gospels, And we've already seen several times where Jesus says something and we say, well, He's addressing His purpose. For example, um, in chapter 9, verse 13. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we see there a type of a purpose. And we've said, Jesus came for sinners. Well, here we have another purpose. And Jesus is addressing... Their suppositions to His purpose. Now the question we would ask of this passage is, why would Jesus address this? Why would Jesus, when He's talking to His disciples, why would He, say, why would he need to address the fact that maybe they've come to some false conclusions or some, some false presuppositions about His purpose? And if you'll remember, we've, we've talked several times about um, the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. Matthew... Is a Jew and he's writing to Jewish people and he's using a very, very Jewish tone and we've talked about this and, and so he's trying to explain to a Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for because the Jews had very uh, weird, skewed views of what would happen when the Messiah came. They were expecting the Messiah would come as a literal king on the earth. And he would set up a literal kingdom on this earth with a palace and, and borders and people and subjects and, and, and laws. And he would take Rome, who was at this point um, over the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were under the oppression of Rome. The Messiah would come and knock Rome off of the, 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 the place of leadership here and put the Jewish people back to where they belonged as God's special chosen particular people. That's what they thought the Messiah would do. Well, Jesus comes and he's born in a barn and he's a carpenter from Bethlehem. Has anything good ever come out of Bethlehem? And so these men have heard Jesus teach. They've they've heard him uh, his authority. They've they've watched His miracles. And so maybe they're coming to terms with the fact that this is Him. This is the One. This is the Messiah. They're following Him. Then they're sold out. And based on that knowledge, based on the facts of what they've seen and they've heard, they're thinking, this is the Messiah. And what He's going to do is He's going to usher in this kingdom where the Jewish people are put back where they're supposed to go, and there's going to be full peace on the earth. And Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. When He says, I have come, again, He brings Himself back into the central focus. We're talking about discipleship and we're talking about these men being sent out as missionaries. But every time there's there's a new idea or a new topic, Jesus is always put back into the center. Because everything that the disciple of Jesus does, our, our, our the places we go, the message that we carry, the lifestyle that we live, it's all Christ-centered. And so that's why he keeps on saying things like, for my sake, for my name's sake. You will be like me. A disciple is not above his teacher. If they've done this to me, they will do it to you. If you will acknowledge me before men. It, over and over, it's Christ-centered. And he keeps on bringing this into fo- focus. And so here, do not think that I have come. And he's showing this intimate connection between these men and their calling and their message to Christ Himself. You may have heard of uh, the phraseology of somebody speaking of uh, incarnational ministry as in Jesus came to earth and so now we go to the world that just because God is a missionary God then we are then sent as missionaries this this idea that what Jesus has done for us is very closely related to what we're doing for others. Jesus has reconciled us to the Father now we have the ministry of reconciliation he's connecting this ministry with himself and the reason he has to do this and address their suppositions as it pertains to him and the ministry is because right off the bat like always our human condition we get to the, we we go to the wrong conclusion we see points 1 2 and 3 and say oh i got this take me to 11 we get to wrong conclusions. and So he's trying to, to, to steer them back. Do not think. No, 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 no. Don't suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. And this still happens today. Like I said, this is our human condition. We do this. We, we, we learn a couple doctrines and we just immediately think that it leads to this. And it's like, well, no, that's not what the Bible says. You can't just say if this, then that when the Bible says something different. And so in our day, for example, you've got uh, people who will believe in Jesus, maybe profess to be Christians, believe in the stories of Scripture, and they come to the conclusion, yes, Jesus died on the cross to set a great moral example for us to follow. Well, that's kind of true. But there's more to it than that. He actually died to suffer under the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Well, they say well no 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 God is love God would never God would never have wrath against sinners and then it definitely wouldn't pour out his wrath on his own son that's just that's cosmic child abuse well no sorry the Bible says God is love and the Bible also says that Christ died in the place of sinners he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God there was an exchange and so you see how that works there's a that people draw the wrong conclusion. Or you got the other extreme where people say, man, yeah, Jesus. I love Jesus. Man, He was a great teacher. A great prophet. Well, no. Uh, he was those things. But He's also God in human flesh. We, we get to the wrong conclusions. And so he's He's steering them back in. Do not think that I have come. Again, this incarnational intention is here. He's... He's speaking of his coming to earth. Although he is eternal God, who's always existed, this this him coming to earth begins a new work, and I hate using the idea of a new work or a new purpose, but God is doing something different on the earth, in the coming of Jesus than He had done before. He's revealing Himself even further in the coming of Christ. And so Jesus is addressing this new work. What might the purpose be? I mean, we know God loves us so much. These men are thinking, we're Jews. We we are God's chosen people. And, and if you're the Messiah and you've come, surely you've come to just restore peace to Jerusalem. And He's saying, no, 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 no. Do not think that I've come to bring peace. Peace to the earth. Peace. We've discussed this word before. I want to do it again because it's been a long time. Peace is not quietness or tranquility or no sound. We use the word we say I need a little peace and quiet. In Scripture, the majority of the time this word peace is used, the idea is more so of unity, of of joining peace Two things together. Of of setting at one again, two things. And so with that picture, you have another idea of two opposing sides or two different sides that need to be joined. And so that's peace. It's harmony. It's it's accord. It's not just quietness. So Jesus says, do not think that I've I've come to bring that, that type of unity, that, that harmony to the earth. From heaven, where I've come down from heaven, I'm now on the earth, and I have not come to just bring in this perfect unity and happiness and harmony. And when he mentions earth and coming to earth, he's drawing this distinction between heaven and earth good and evil, the godly and the ungodly, the, the perfect and the fallen. And so, in just this first sentence, Jesus has humbled Himself. He's he's spanned this infinite chasm between His glorious, eternal majesty in heaven to come down as a human being on the earth. And when it comes to these men whom He's called and chosen and He's instructed and He's taught and He's sending them out, when it comes to their purpose and His purpose, they're intimately connected, they need to understand what is actually At stake, what 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 actually are the terms of their going out into the world? And his coming into the world is directly related to how they will be perceived in the world. We we look, you just move your eyes over to 24 and 25 again. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the teacher, or, or and the servant to be like his master. It's the same idea that Jesus is saying, I have come. And I have a purpose. And I will be received a certain way. And the world is going to treat me a certain way. And because you're going out in my name, it's going to be the same for you. And so you need to get this. You need to understand and expect how the world is going to treat you. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. And then the second sentence. I have not come to bring peace, but... A sword. first half I've not come to bring peace. it doesn't get any more clear than that. this is, this is, is precise. We don't have to ask Jesus, what what really do you I mean, did you come to kind of come to maybe bring a little peace or, or no, I did not come to bring peace. If you think that, you're wrong. Don't think that. That's what he's saying. Don't don't suppose that I've come to bring in this type of harmony and unity on the earth. I've not come for that purpose. And if you're under that impression, then you're mistaken. I have not come to set at one again these opposing sides. I've not come to bring, bring peace, but a sword. Well, we could, the implication is here is I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Now, I want to walk us through a little biblical theology of sword and what, what it means here. But just, just by reading it, we're not ignorant. We know what a sword is. It's a weapon used for battle, for killing people. That's a sword. But to prove that, I, I want you to join me and turn to Genesis chapter 3. And a lot of them, these verses are not going to be on the screen, so if you have a Bible, get ready to, to flip through it, get your uh, fingers licked and ready. So Genesis chapter 3, and look at verse 24. You guys remember from our class, and when, we're, when we're studying uh, uh, getting a good biblical understanding of a topic, we start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and go all the way to Revelation. That's what we're going to do. And it's not going to take as long as you think. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, He, that's God, drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, and at the east of the Garden of Eden He placed the cherubim with and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. First sword we hear of. So, so what's the picture here? The picture is Adam has been kicked out of the garden. He's moving east and a cherubim is placed there to guard the garden to keep Adam from going back in. That's the picture that we get. And he has a flaming sword. It doesn't say a flaming gate. It doesn't say a flaming shield or a flaming staff or, or a flaming sign. that says do not enter. It's a flaming sword. It's this, this picture of a weapon of offense guard the garden. In other words, God is saying, this angel is here and if you try to get back in, he will kill you because he has a sword. Not a shield. Sword. Okay, turn to Exodus. Chapter 5. And I'm going to read verse 3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now here, Moses and Aaron are, are, are trying to get Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go out of Egypt. And, and the idea is here, let us go and worship our God lest He fall upon us with one, pestilence, um, plagues of some sort, or the sword. Now, is, now is, does God have an actual sword? No, God doesn't have a body, so he, can't, he doesn't hold an actual sword. The picture here is God will fall on us in judgment if we don't worship Him. The sword is this figurative uh, word for, for judgment. Okay? Turn to the book of Leviticus. Chapter 26, Leviticus 26, verse 6, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. So here, these people are receiving promises from God as to what will happen if they obey the law. There will be blessings and peace in the land. And he says, the sword shall not go through your land. What's he talking about? He's saying there there won't come devastation and war and battle and killing. It will be peace. If you will do what I say. If you'll obey the law, you will have this peace in the land. The sword will not go through your land. Alright, Deuteronomy chapter 33. In verse 29, says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Now in that one, the Lord is described using two different um, pieces of, of battle equipment. A people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, that's, that's defense, and then the sword of your triumph. So there, God is likened to the weapon of offense that brings triumph in battle, the sword. All right, Joshua chapter 5. And verse 13. This is an awesome story, by the way. Awesome passage of Scripture. Verse 13, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now this is Joshua. With the pre-incarnate Christ. This is, a, this is Christ before He was Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate as a man, the commander of the Lord's armies, the Lord of hosts. And He's standing there and He has a sword. And Joshua says, well, are you going hunting? No, He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, I see you have a sword. You're going to give somebody a haircut. Or you're going to... No, He says, He sees the drawn sword. He says, okay, are you for us? Or for them? We're about to go into battle. Are you for me or for that side? Because I can tell by what you're holding in your hand, you're here for battle. Because he had a sword. Okay? Turn to First Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to be in verses verse 32 and 33. 1 Samuel 15, 32. This one's a little more literal. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. This is funny. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. The background of the story is Saul had let Agag live when God said kill everybody. Saul had let him live and so Agag's you know, kind of excited. You know, surely the, the uh, bitterness of death is past. He thinks he's cool. He's in the clear. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. He says, you, Agag, you've commanded armies, you've led people into battle, you've slaughtered children, now you're going to be dead. And the prophet of God hacked him to pieces. Okay, now turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 17. Psalm 17. And verse 13. This is a psalm of David. David is praying to the Lord. and He says, Arise, O Lord. Confront Him. Subdue Him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by Your sword. Again, figuratively speaking, because God doesn't actually have a literal sword. He doesn't have a body. The idea here is David is saying, Deliver me from the wicked people who are after me, who are, who are, who are trying to catch me, kill me, afflict me, all through the psalms. David is running from people who are trying to kill him and he prays to God, deliver me with your sword. He's saying, God, you get those people. He doesn't say put up a barrier and block them. The sword, the offensive weapon. We move to the New Testament. Romans 8.35 Turn there. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? We just group these words together. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. This is not good. What Paul is saying is what can separate us? Even the worst of things, the sword, death, cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Flip over just a page or two to chapter 13. Paul is speaking about the secular government. Chapter 13 and verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Here, Paul is describing how the government should act. Um, A lot of times this is reversed in our day, but this is how the government should act. And what he says is he doesn't bear the sword in vain. The government is here to punish wrongdoing. He's God's servant. The rulers are God's servants and they carry out God's judgment. The sword here is likened to God's judgment on wrongdoing carried out by the government. Okay, now, last last place we'll turn. Well, second to last. but Last book, Revelation. We've got to end there. Revelation chapter 1. And these pictures in Revelation are a little different, but I'll, I'll... I'm going to address them with some other passages in just a second, but Revelation chapter one, verse sixteen, John has this vision of Jesus, and it says, "In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength." So there's a sword. We turn over to chapter two, verse twelve, and the angel of the church in and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 16 of chapter 2, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. See a theme there. This, this Christ picture. He, he has the sword coming out of His mouth. And turn over to chapter 19. The last section. 19. Verses 20 and 21. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain By the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne, or on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. When Jesus references a sword, and when the Bible references a sword, other than these last few passages, which I'm going to speak to in just a second, there's no mistaking what's what's happening here. We don't have to wonder what he means. When a sword is used or brought up, it always represents death and war and strife and opposition and bloodshed. Always. Yeah. Except in these passages in Revelation where this figurative sword is coming from the mouth of Jesus. And this can be explained with Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Even there, this figurative sword, the Word of God coming from the mouth of Christ, is still piercing and dividing and cutting. That's what he's saying. I've not come to bring union, to join everything together and make it all better and have peace. I've come to divide. I am the dividing line. That's my purpose. And if you're going out in my name, you need to understand my purpose so that when you go out, your purpose is right there with it. And you're going to be directly associated, intimately acquainted with me. That's what he's saying. And we have to understand that, that the presence of Christ on the earth and, and, and in our heart, our Holy Spirit, and our confession of him and acknowledgement of him publicly divides us from the world. We cannot look like the world because Jesus said, I did not come to make everybody look the same. There's division. There's cutting. There should be a clear distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. Enough of this Christianity that says, well, you know, we just he prayed a prayer. We hope for the best. No, you're either a Christian or you're not. And if you are, you're going to look like it. That's what he's saying. And this is taught over and over in Scripture. And I don't know where we've come to the place or gotten to the point where someone can be a Christian, kind of. There's no such thing. There should be a clear distinction. So in the church, when we come together and we worship, this doesn't look like anything else that the world does. And if it does, then there's a problem. Our music. Doesn't sound like what the world does. Now this is not some kind of stab against different genres of music. I'm just saying when we worship, we have our own music. It's not like anything the world listens to or sings. It's, it's different in often in style and, and the way it's put together and the words and all of it. It's just it's it's different when we worship together. We come together in unity and love. We have people who come together who outside of the Christian faith, we would have no business being together. We don't have very much in common. We don't work together. We don't play together. But because of our unity, the Holy Spirit of God, we come together and we're friends and we relate and we love one another because we're the church. We go outside of here and we do works of ministry and grace. Not because we just want to help people. Not for social justice. But because we want to get the gospel to people who need to hear it. We're different from the world. We do good things for a different reason than the world does good things. The individual Christian. Everything that you see in the world, you should be looking at through a biblical lens. Everything. The, the Scriptures and and, and and theology is not something that just applies to certain aspects of your life. This is one of the biggest... Um, Points of Reformed Theology is that this book goes into every single crevice and corner of everything that you do and changes the way you do it. It makes it look different. So we live sacrificial lives of worship and devotion. We live for the next life, not for this life. We nurture our inner man, not just our physical bodies. We might take care of our physical bodies. We should, but that's not going to be our main concern. We want to nurture the inner man, the spirit the Christian family is not just a unit of people who happen to be united by blood and live together and so we have to learn to get along. Love your brother because he's your brother. No. The Christian family becomes, and inside the home, becomes the seminary of the church state, where children are raised up to then go out and lead the next generation. And so... so The home becomes the breeding ground for pastors and deacons and and godly men and women who will lead the church of the next generation because it's a Christian home. It's not just a home. It's not just a regular home. It's different. The Christian father steps up. Father and husband steps up and he is now the pastor of his home, the shepherd of his little church. He takes responsibility for spiritual leadership rather than just conking out on the recliner and vegging out in front of a screen. That's what the world does. That's what worldly men do. And if you watch sitcoms, you see what the world thinks about dads. They're a bunch of idiots who have to be kept in line by a woman, by by the mom. Because he's too stupid to figure anything out. But the Christian man in his home is the leader, the shepherd, the pastor, who takes responsibility and leads and guides and instructs. For his children he does the work of an evangelist in his home sharing the gospel with his children not just hoping that well i took him to church and so i hope it catches evangelizes his children the christian mother honors that role the husband and the father and and compliments that not says nice things about it, but her role complements his role and they work together to raise the children and the nurture and the admonition of, of the Lord to keep the home in order. She teaches her children to love the Lord and love the church and love their father and obey the rules. The Christian child is not like the child of the world. The Christian child obeys their parents because the Bible says children obey your parents, not because, well, I'm afraid Daddy will get mad or, or Daddy won't buy me something or Daddy won't do something for me. It's because the Bible says so. The Christian employer treats employees with dignity and respect and seeks justice and fairness. The Christian employee does all his work for Jesus. Not for the boss. You do submit to your authority, but you do your work for the Lord. Colossians 3. And all your labors do it unto the Lord. If you're a Christian and you work in a workplace, you should be the best one there. Because your boss is Jesus. And he requires us to work hard and be good. And we love him enough. And we want to give him that offering of worship in all that we do. We don't just work and say, well, I'm just here to get paid. No, that's a vocation that God has put you in to work, to fulfill your ministry there, to make relationships, to look for outlets to share the Gospel. That doesn't mean using company time and stealing your boss's money to share the Gospel. That means you build a relationship with somebody and then get to know them outside of work. The Christian friend seeks to be the best friend that a friend could ever have by leading them to Christ and making disciples Of friends and sacrifices for the good of others always puts others ahead of themselves. Christians are different. Is what all 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 of that boils down to. We should be different in every aspect of our lives. Everything should be different. Now, some people would read this verse and say, "Well, yeah, but what about you know Isaiah nine where it says Jesus is the Prince of Peace?" Or we read in the Beatitudes, "Blessed are the peacemakers." Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you. 5.1 Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What about that? Those verses are speaking of the peace that Christ did come to bring amongst believers and within our own hearts and between us and God. That's a different piece. Remember, Jesus is talking about His disciples going into the world. And when the Christian goes into the world, if there's not going to be peace. If there's not just this union. He's not saying, well, everything's going to be great because you know, people are just going to love you to death because you're so nice. No, He's saying, I mean, you're going to be as nice as you can, and you should be. And you're going to be graceful to people and kind to people and love people. But the fact that you stand up for Jesus, stand up for me, He says, people are not going to like it. It's a dividing line. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me because it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. The context, again, is this division of good and evil, of right and wrong, of godly and ungodly. There's always been this division. There's always been you know, Satan and, and Eve, or, or Cain and Abel, or, or the rest of the world. And righteous Noah the kings who kidnapped Lot. And then Abram who goes to rescue his nephew. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked cities. And then there's the one righteous Lot and his family. Hagar versus Sarah. Ishmael versus Isaac. Jacob versus Esau. Laban versus Jacob. Joseph's brothers versus Joseph, Pharaoh versus the Hebrew people, magicians of Pharaoh versus Moses and Aaron, Canaanites versus the children of Israel, Goliath versus David, David versus Saul, the rebellious Israel versus the good prophets of God. There's always been this distinction, and and this is not an idea of of two opposing equal kingdoms like Satan is up here and God is over here and they're just battling. Satan is is just an angel. All evil is underneath God and He's in control of all of it and then rules over all things. But there's always been these opposing systems ever since the fall of man. And so Jesus says, in effect, that His purpose, that when it comes to this division of good and evil, His mission in the world is not simply to just bring a union and say, well, let's just blur the lines and bring everybody together. No, he says the line is getting bolder, the line is getting darker, and you better pick which side you're going to be on. That's what he says when he says, I have come to bring a sword. A perfect picture of this in the Old Testament was when the law was given. And the law came, remember, to show the character of God, the holiness of God, and, and to make clear... This division between people. When the law came, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When the law came, even people who thought they were pretty good realized, I'm not good. Because the law said, you must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And people said, well, I'm not holy like God is. The law set this distinction. It was the dividing line. Or Paul would say the schoolmaster. It should, it should drive us to Christ because we realize... The line is is bolder and thicker and more distinct than ever. Of course, Christ comes in Matthew 5 and says, Do not think, again, adjusting their suppositions, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to blur this line or smudge it. I've come to fulfill it. I have come as the dividing line. I've come to take these two opposing sides and make them even more distinct and show all people, you're all on the side. You're all on the opposing side. And Jesus has come to make that line more clear and He's come to gather His people to His side. And that's that's the good news is that if you're a Christian, you've been transferred from the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. And so you're on the... The other side, Christ fulfills the law in that He fulfills that in, in two ways. First, as the law was a dividing line, so Christ comes as the dividing line. Not to blur it, but to make it more distinct, to separate the people. And that distinction only grows more and more clear as we go, grow closer to Christ. But He also comes to fulfill the law in that He obeyed it. In the stead of all of his people. And so now, in Christ, we stand as perfected before God because he has fulfilled the law. And so, the way we draw the world to Christ, this is the disciples going out. And so, the way that we draw the world to Christ, of course, is by preaching the gospel and in the lives that we live. It's not by looking like them. People don't come to Christ because you show them that you can be cool too. People come to Christ because you look different. You're distinct. You share the Gospel. You give a defense for the hope that is in you. You let your light so shine before men that they glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so join the kingdom that stands in opposition to the world. So as we move into this section... It's gonna get, It gets really personal in the following verses. But we need to understand, first and foremost, to be with Christ, to side with the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be in Him by faith sets you apart. You can't look like the world. You can't dress like the world, spend like the world, think like the world, waste your time like the world. You become distinct. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word.